When we're in a setting like this, whether it's the first time to a church like this, or a seminar you go to, or a class, and there's a speaker you've never heard before. As he or she walks up there and begins to talk, we all naturally, immediately, begin to make some assessments about the person. So if you're new here, I walked up here, you, you saw me come up and said, huh, well, he's an older pastor. You thought, well, he actually dresses older than he is. Someone should probably help him out in his style selections. And the more I talk, you likely immediately thought, I'm not sure where he's from, but he's not from Boston. There's an accent that he has that's clearly south of here, and it may be quite a ways south of here because it's clearly not a local Boston accent. And we all do that. Our minds quickly make assessments about people we meet based upon how they look, based upon what they say, based upon our brief interactions with them. I don't know if you ever think about how that works out in our minds. Have you ever think about the people you tend to develop relationships with? If you were to think about those closest to you, are are most of those people who you are very much alike, very much have similarities to them, or actually when you look at your friendships, you find people who are very different than you in a lot of different ways. And we wonder, does that matter? Do these assessments that we make in our minds, do they matter? Does it matter who we build our life with, which relationships? Should it matter to us? And most importantly, does it matter to God? Does God care about assessments that I make in my mind about other? Does God care about who I build close relationships with? Does God care about what that looks like in the life of his church? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and the Bible's near you, you can find it on page 1011, page 1011. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you, you see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we're in chapter 2, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout our time together. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So following the service at the back of the room, there's an information table, there's a stack of Bibles there. So just grab one of those. You don't have to ask permission, just grab one, take it with you today as our gift to you. Today we're in the second week of a six-week series that we're calling Together, The Life of the Church. As we're looking at some essential elements of the life of God's people in a local church. It's not an exhaustive series, but, but at least six aspects of that. So we look today, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, or you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the, to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This morning in our passage, we see this main emphasis. As followers of Christ, we must not show any forms of partiality, but we must always embrace true love of neighbor. As followers of Christ, we must not show any forms of partiality, but we must always embrace true love of neighbor. And we'll look at our passage in two parts. So first, we'll see forsaking partiality, and then second, fostering love. Forsaking partiality, fostering love. So first, forsaking partiality. James, the author of this letter, begins verse 1 with a direct address to the church. And when your translation, your translation might say, my brothers here, it could just as actually accurately be translated, my brothers and sisters. And clearly this was there, therefore, for the entire congregation. And he begins by giving them this important imperative. He says, show no partiality. And then he spends several verses addressing this. Now, why would James spend so much time addressing this? In the epistles, we often find the apostles make a, make a statement, a, a command, an imperative, but then often just move on, maybe even a collection of them. But here, he gives an imperative, but then also he spends multiple verses expanding on it. Why not simply say, don't do it? Well, it must be of significant importance, and it must also be a common temptation if you feel the need to spend so much time upon it. So he wants them and us to think about the implications of this. It must also be something that we can easily overlook or excuse as normal. So he wants to build a case and then undermine our wrong thinking. Now when James says partiality, or your translation might use the word favoritism instead of partiality, what does he mean by that? The partiality here is different from some of our more common usages. So, for instance, I might say to you, I'm partial to Dunkin' Donuts over Starbucks, their coffee, as any wise person would be. <laughs> so I'm partial to it in that way. Well, that, that of course, is a very trivial partiality. That's not the same sort of partiality that James is alluding to here. Here, the word that's translated partiality or favoritism means literally receiving the face. So to receive the face means to make judgments based upon the external appearances of others. So what James is saying is to, to show partiality or favoritism is to make judgments, to make distinctions about people based on externals. 
Then James turns and gives us an illustration in verse 2 and 3 of how this might play out, uh, one form of partiality. And he describes a sort of hypothetical situation, but likely something that was very similar had happened in, in the world of that day. And so the picture is of a church gathering for a weekly time of worship, something like this. And two men come to the gathering that are both unfamiliar with the gathering. So it may be that they're not Christians yet, or maybe they're newer Christians, or they're new to this congregation. But when they approach, one of them, we're told in the text, is obviously wealthy. So you can tell by his jewelry, he has rings, and by his attire. And you can also tell that one of them is quite poor. You can also tell this by his attire. And James says, if you pay attention to the wealthy man with fine clothing, and you say, come and sit in the best seat. But on the other hand, you say to the poor man, go stand over there or sit in a lowly place. He says, you have made distinctions. And the point of this text is to make clear that this is not acceptable for a believer to do. This must not be a part of the life of the church. Now, in the context of this illustration, James gives the form of partiality is one connected to economics, rich and poor. But the principle holds for any form of partiality Favoritism. There, there are numerous ways that this can play out in our world. Obviously, economics, class, ethnicity, age, education, appearance. And in different cultures around the world today, there would be different ones of those that are, that are more influential. In some cultures around the world, it would be class. That would be the primary form of partiality. Others, it would be ethnicity. Some, it might be age. And in order to call us to forsake partiality, James then turns and gives us several reasons why we must forsake partiality. And the first reason, at the outset of the argument, he wants them to realize, he wants us to realize that partiality is utterly incompatible with the life of one who truly knows Jesus Christ. So he says, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. glory. As if he's saying, you can't hold to faith in Christ and hold partiality. You can't hold them both simultaneously. So, so you'll have to let go of one to hold to the other. So if you want to hold to the, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you must not pick up partiality. Or if you choose to hold on to partiality, you can't hold on to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. And that is because the Lord Jesus Christ came to bring this gift of grace, this salvation available to all people, crossing all boundaries. So a person who has true faith in Christ, the Lord of glory, cannot, must not show partiality. A second reason, though, he says, partiality is making judgments with evil thoughts. Partiality is making judgments with evil thoughts. Look down at verse 4. Partiality is a form of making distinctions and of setting ourselves as a judge over others based on externals, based on a shallow assessment of them. Now, friends, we must not miss how he describes these judgmental thoughts. James calls them evil thoughts. It's a word that we don't use very often in our culture. In our culture, almost no one will call anything evil. We, we squirm at the word. But friends, the Christian worldview gives us this important and valuable category, evil. 
And there are some things in this world that are so devastating, so ungodly, that they're evil. And this making distinctions, judging in this way, James says these thoughts are of the devil himself. He loves partiality. So when you and I make judgments of others based upon any of these categories, age, economics, ethnicity, friends, they are nothing less than evil thoughts. We should feel the weight of that. These are not simply bad habits. These are not simply unhelpful thoughts. They're evil thoughts. A third reason we should forsake partiality. Partiality is ungodly. It is unlike God. Partiality is contrary to God's own heart. Listen to the way that Moses described God to his people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So here's the picture. God is not partial. Jesus Christ came and walked the earth, holding out the good news to any and all. And as he did, he was completely impartial. As we read the gospel accounts, we see a scandalous life where, where Jesus was, was with the powerful and the weak, with the wealthy and the poor. And now in particular, what was scandalous was his love for the outsiders, those who others would have been partial against, and yet Jesus was drawn to them. And even Jesus' opponents admitted he was impartial. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 20, 21, his opponents were, were about to ask Jesus a question to try to trap him, to try to trick him. But here's what they say. Even his opponents, here's what they see, say to Jesus. Luke 20, 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So friends, we must see that partiality and favoritism is contrary to God's own character. God does not look at externals, but he looks at the heart, and we, his children, must do the same. We must not look at externals, but look to the heart. And James goes on to show us that God's kingdom is upside down from the categories that the world so often uses. Look down at verse 5. Verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Now, is James saying that, that all the poor are to be saved or that the rich have no hope of salvation? No, that's not what we see in the scriptures. But we do see in the scriptures that those who are materially poor are often more open to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we've seen across the centuries, what we see around the world today. And it makes sense because often when we have wealth, we feel strong. We, we seem to be self-reliant. And so it often is those who are struggling or those who are suffering are more willing to admit our need of a Savior. Jesus consistently warned that it's difficult but not impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So yes, both rich and poor may enter in, but the kingdom of God is upside down from the categories of our world. 
And certainly this church that James wrote to was like all the early churches where there were diversity within the congregation, but certainly more poor than rich as a part of the church in that day. A fourth reason, partiality dishonors a person made in the image of God. Partiality dishonors a person made in the image of God. We see in verse 6 that in showing partiality, he dishonors the poor man. And who is the poor man but a person made in the image of God? Later in this letter, in James chapter 3, verse 9, as James talks about how we're not to tear people down with our tongues, he says of our tongues, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness or the image of God. So friends, here we can be so thankful for the biblical worldview that helps us to understand the world and understand and respond to partiality. For the biblical worldview says that all people are created in the image of God. Every person, everywhere, is an image bearer, and therefore every person has value, has dignity, simply because they bear the image of God. But the biblical worldview also explains that sin has entered the world and impacted everything, impacted human relationships, bringing alienation between us and God and with one another. So divisions exist between classes and ethnic groups, between ages. So as Christians, we're not surprised by sinful attitudes that lead to partiality and favoritism. But also, very importantly, we have the tool to undermine partiality, and that is the truth that all are created in the image of God. For this is why we must reject this, because we understand every single person you will ever encounter is valuable, because they are an image bearer. Now, it's certainly true that at times in the past and still today, Christians have failed in this. And Christians have at times embraced partiality in horrible ways. But when they have done that, or when they do that, they're not following the way of Jesus. They're, in fact, rebelling against Jesus if a Christian does this. For nowhere does God condone partiality by his people. So Christians can and should be a voice for equality in the world because we understand all are created in the image of God. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would spend your Sunday morning with us. And I'm sure that you also believe partiality is wrong. But I do wonder, on what basis do you make that judgment, that partiality, that favoritism, is wrong? As I mentioned, the Christian worldview is what gives us the, the, the categories as image bearers. But I wonder if you, if you push down on your worldview, it's good that you think partiality is wrong, but, but on what basis? And we'd love for you to, to know the biblical worldview that helps us to understand the evil reality of sin and the beauty of every person as an image bearer. A fifth reason we must reject partiality, and that is simply this. Partiality, James tells us, is foolish. James goes to a very practical level, verse 6 and 7, and saying, look, partiality doesn't even work practically because these people who you're being partial to, that you're favoring, are the very ones who mistreat you. They're the very ones who drag you into court. They're the very ones who blaspheme the name of Christ. And then a final reason, a sixth reason. 
We must forsake partiality because it's sinful. James states plainly, verse 9, that if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So let's hear this clearly. To show partiality, any form of partiality to other people based on externals, is not an unfortunate choice. It's not a bad habit. It's not something I just grew up doing. It's sin. It is nothing less than sin, and every sin matters. Every sin is serious. Friends, all forms of partiality are sin, so we must show no partiality. None. So we see forsaking partiality. But then second, we see fostering love. We're given an alternative in verse 8. Look down at verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So they, as God's people, are supposed to be loving their neighbors as themselves, but instead they've been showing favoritism, partiality. And in verse 8 and 9, James makes clear that there are two ways. To keep the way of Christ, love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. Or to show partiality, if you do, you're committing sin. The royal law here would be referring to the law of the king, Jesus the king, would include the Mosaic law fulfilled in Christ as well as the teachings of Jesus. And when Jesus was asked to identify what, what are the greatest commandments, Matthew 22, 37 to 39, Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, lest we misunderstand, Jesus' expanded neighbor to include any and every person. Any and every person we may encounter is a neighbor that is to be loved in this way, to love neighbor as yourself. So friends, we should see here that James doesn't say that it's enough for Christians to simply forsake partiality. We must do that, but he doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there, but he doesn't. So yes, we must forsake partiality. It is certainly prohibited, but the Christian, the church, can never be satisfied with simply the elimination of partiality. But instead, we're called away from partiality, but we're called to something, and that is to love. To love our neighbor as ourselves. So yes, away from partiality. We reject, we forsake partiality, but we must embrace this neighbor love. So friends, this is why partiality among God's people within any church is so disturbing and destructive. It undermines what is to be a key part of the community of faith that is this mutual, sacrificial love. Jesus had given this important teaching, expanding upon this in John chapter 13, 34, and 35. Jesus said this, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, one of the sure evidences that you are my followers, a true disciple, is if you have this sort of love for one another. 
So a great picture is intended. A Christ-empowered, grace-filled, mutual love and sacrifice is to be a blessing for us in the life together in the church, but also to be intriguing and attractive to those who don't know Christ. From the church of Jesus Christ, it would be perhaps the only place in the world where there truly isn't partiality. In the church of Jesus Christ, all backgrounds are to be welcomed. All ethnic groups welcomed, loved, and valued. All economic situations welcomed, loved, and valued. All ages welcomed, loved, and valued. All educational experiences, every sort of distinction the world can make, all are to be welcomed, loved, and valued. And we do this not because of anything in us, but only the shared experience that we have come to know Christ. And now we're empowered by Christ for this. So friend, do you see the great opportunity we have as a church? In the midst of a culture that is increasingly splintered in a million tiny groups, based on age, ethnicity, interest, politics, and so many other categories. In the midst of that culture, the church has the opportunity to stand uniquely apart from that to be beautifully different. Friends, that's what we want to be as a church, a a beautifully, strangely welcoming church. All valued, all welcomed, all loved. But where do we find the resources to overcome partiality? If, If partiality is so normal to us, where do we find the resources to ever overcome this? For we find that in the work of Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find freedom and power to change. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is the story of Christianity. That the perfect, sinless Son of God dying for sinners. We were living in outright rebellion, no interest in Him, and He pursued us and has made a way through His cross and resurrection for us to experience the free gift of grace in salvation. And all of this is mercy from Christ to us. So where do we find the, the power to live differently? It's because we've received mercy, therefore we must extend mercy. The people of God who receive from God mercy upon mercy upon mercy must extend mercy to others. And we see in our text, friends, a daunting caution that if there is no mercy in me, and if our God is rich in mercy, and he's provided mercy for all of his people through Christ, but there's no mercy in me, and so there's only partiality in me, I should wonder, have I truly come to know the mercy and grace of God? If I have no mercy for those who are different than me, I should wonder, am I really a Christian? So James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged. There is grace upon grace in Christ, but there's also accountability for us. So if I continue to show partiality and not mercy, I'd have to wonder, do I know Christ? But then James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So those of us who are truly in Christ, we have received infinite mercy. mercy, And we extend mercy to others, not perfectly, but we seek to grow in that mercy day by day, year by year. 
And we live with confidence, assurance that God's mercy is free to us as we extend this mercy to others. Friends, the story of Christianity is a king who came to bring mercy. And because of that, we can love those who are very different than us. We can sacrifice. We can give up our preferences for the good of those who are different than us. If you're not a Christian, we would so much want you to know this love of God, this grace and mercy that Christ has made available to any and all of us, no matter our background, no matter our story, grace is available in Christ. This is new to you. You'd like to know more? I'll be at the door on the way out. I would love to chat with you. You could write it on the connection card. If you're online, you can write on the form. Or maybe you're not ready to talk to anybody. We would just welcome you to continue to join us week after week as you feel comfortable to hear more of this grace that God has provided. Friends, for those of us who are Christians, we have the resources to live differently. And if we push down you know, deep, why am I so apt to show partiality? Why do I favor some groups? It's because I'm, I'm typically insecure. It's because I'm, I'm self-centered. Because I want to elevate myself. And so I engage in sinful partiality to keep myself comfortable, to keep my group comfortable. But friends, the the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from that. Because in Christ, we have a new identity. You're a child of God, kept by God. And that, that identity is based not upon your behavior, but upon Christ's perfect, finished work. So therefore, you don't have to be insecure. So you don't have to worry, what if I'm seen with this person, or what if I'm not seen with that person? We're freed from those old ways of thinking. Secure in the gospel, in Christ, in this new identity that enables us to to risk and to reach out to people who are very different than us. So what can we do today? First, friend, let me encourage you, pray that God would help you to just be honest about your own heart and life. Pray that that God would help you see where is partiality a part of your normal rhythm of living. And we need to pray for God to help us because it's not something we want to see in our own lives. And often it's been such a pattern, perhaps, of our own family or just our own experience that it just seems natural and normal. It's hard to even imagine that not being a part of your life. Pray also that God would help you to see partiality as it is, sin, and nothing less. Pray that you wouldn't be able to soften what partiality is, to rationalize it, but to call it what God calls it, which is sin. And when we see sin, to to do with it what all Christians do, which is to repent and confess it. And there's good news that, that we can repent, we can turn, and change can come. You may find there's valuable value in sharing this with another brother or sister in the faith. Maybe just to say, you know, I've come to realize that this is something that I struggle with. Would you pray for me? Would perhaps you even ask me some, some questions, you know, next week or next month? Invite others to, to help you to try to make progress. Pray. Pray that God would change your heart. They would give you grace and strength to live differently. And then, friends, we we can practically work against partiality when we gather at times like this. 
So we urge all of us, give time and effort to connect with those who are different than you. Our natural default is because it's just easier to connect with people like ourselves. So when it comes to age, for instance, what does it look like to step out of your age category, to, to get to know some who are older and younger than you? You might think, like, how would I ever talk to the pastor about it? He's so 80s. I'll tell you about the greatness of the 80s. We could, we could talk about that. But what's it like to, to think about people who are of a different age? As we have kids in the, in the life of the church, in the 9 o'clock service, there are kids everywhere, and there are few kids here. But as adults, sometimes we ignore kids. It's like to be adults who talk to kids, see the value of kids, because kids are people, believe it or not. Little people is what they are. And so to be a people who, who don't just say, let's push the kids aside so I can talk to the adults, but to love the kids and engage with the kids. If you're a student, we love students. We're so glad that you're here. But it's certainly easier. You have more in common with other students than those people in the real world out there, whatever those people do. So what's it look like, those students, though, to step out of students to get to know some who aren't students? And vice versa, if you're not a student, you may think, I don't, I don't even know what to talk to a student about. It's been so long. To, to cross over in that way as well. To, to connect with people who have a, a different ethnic background than you. To pursue that and see the goodness and the value of that. On Sunday gatherings like this, for us to pursue people that we wouldn't say to somebody else, as they say in James, go sit over there, but we'd say, no, come and sit with me. Well, if there are no seats available, take my seat. That's what we want us to be in the life of the church, eager to welcome. And then following the service, when we're outside or in here to pursue people, to spend the first few minutes not talking to people that you know well, there's time for that. That's very valuable but to seek out people who perhaps don't know anyone else. That's tremendously important in the life of the church. It's not easy to do, but it's so very valuable, and so many of you do it well. It enriches my soul every Sunday when I see people intentionally reaching out to others, going beyond their comfort to connect with someone different. But also every Sunday, perhaps I'm talking to someone I can just sort of see out of the corner of my eye, someone who maybe is new, but, but no one is going to them. So a few things grieve me more than that. So what does it look like for all of us to, to press forward in that? Thinking beyond even Sunday morning, how do we broaden our friendships and our hospitality? We think about who we might invite to lunch following the service. It's a great thing. When I see people, hey, let's go get lunch together. But do you only get lunch with people just like you? How much you broaden that? If you invite someone to your house, do you only invite to your house people who are just like you? And friend, let me just say that in this, this is worthwhile and godly, whether we benefit from it or not. But you will benefit from it. You will be enriched by friendships with people who are different than you. It's complicated. It can be hard to find commonalities, but you will be enriched by it. One of the closest friends of my life was a man who's uh, the age of my parents. And we could not have been more different. He's Mexican-American. I'm not. 
He loves classical music. I love 80s classic music. We had so many things, almost nothing in common. But he became one of my closest friends. And my life was enriched by him, by those differences. It was hard at times. We, we didn't have a lot in common. But my life was blessed by those differences, not hindered by them. So friends, it's, it's the right and godly thing to do, but you will be, and that's how kind God is. Even when we do this right and godly thing, we will be enriched through that. And then, friends, we take this same attitude into our daily lives. So James is speaking to the life of the church together. So absolutely, we must forsake partiality in the life of the church, but the principle still holds. As you're scattered this week to our different neighborhoods, to our workplace, to your campus, to those places where there are so many divisions, if you're a follower of Jesus, friend, you're to go there, forsake partiality there as well. Love your neighbor as yourself there as well. Pursue those who are very different from you there as well. And as we do this, we will hold up the light of Christ. Not perfectly, but God will be glorified in that. It will be distinctive because it's so unusual, sadly, in our world today. Friends, as we pursue life together in the church, friends, let's pray that we as a church would be welcoming to all. That that would be our story. Not perfect at it, but making progress. No matter your background, no matter your age, no matter your economics, no matter your ethnicity, all the distinctions the world would have set aside, image bearers welcomed into the family of God. Friends, this is a worthwhile pursuit until Christ returns. And as we do this, friend, God will be glorified. People will be rightly loved. Our lives will be enriched and will tell a more accurate, a more beautiful story of what God intends for his people. May that be so today, this week, and the years to come. Today is a means of response. There are several different ways you can respond. I already mentioned the connection card, so that's a helpful way. There are ways we could pray for you. You might just say, look, I really struggle with partiality. You can mark confidential. I'd be, I would love to bear that and pray for you in that. Or maybe you'd like to say, you know, Curtis, I'm not convinced at all with what you said, and, and I want to talk more. I would love to have a conversation with you. I welcome questions or pushback on what I've said today. So you can note them in the card. You can drop in the basket later in the service. Another means of response in just a moment is we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. And friends, this meal that we share is a beautiful reminder of the family of God we're a part of in Christ. As Christians around the world, rich and poor, countless languages, all different experiences, together with this meal, the body of Christ broken blood of Christ shed for us. So if you're a Christian, if you've repented and believed in Christ, been baptized, we invite you today to receive this meal with us. 
If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to receive the bread and the cup today, but you might consider in these moments, could there be a Savior and King like this? Might you turn to him by faith today? We're going to take a moment now to bow our heads for this silent examination, preparing our hearts, confessing sin in preparation for receiving the bread and cup, and then I'll lead us in this. So let's bow our heads for a time of silent praying.